Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Hi, guys. Our guest for today's show is JP Thor, CEO of Kenya a global marketplace of peer-to-peer services with a cryptocurrency payment layer. JP is a former Air Force pilot, an early Bitcoin adopter, and a blockchain ambassador. He serves as an advisor to multiple blockchain startups, including Loki and Trust Wallet. Welcome to the show, JP. Hello, Tisha. Thanks for having me on uh, Decrypt Asia podcast. I'm very excited to chat to you today about our journey so far. Kenya as the uh, decentralized service place for the world and where we hope to take this project. Very excited to have you on as well. Before we dig into what you're building, could you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you go from being an Air Force pilot to ending up in the blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I left school and I started aeronautical engineering uh, with the Air Force uh, and then transitioned towards being a pilot. I flew with the Air Force operationally for about uh, 11 years. But uh, the takeaway from my aeronautical engineering degree was uh, was when I first was first introduced to computer science, and I was captivated by the fact that you can create uh, self-running applications uh, using code. So I continued that as a bit of a hobby throughout my Air Force career, um, rolling out a bunch of iOS apps um, and PC-based apps using .NET. And then I discovered uh, Bitcoin in 2013. And straight away, I was love at first sight. I really gravitated towards the idea of a decentralized peer-to-peer currency uh, that is superior in all facets than traditional currencies. So I really uh, committed to the industry, got involved. Uh, but more than just the speculative side, um, I was, like I said, gravitated towards the potential of the idea. Um, so I just stayed, in, stayed involved um, in the industry right through to 2016 when I decided to I was uh, reach my peak operational output with the Air Force and I wanted to uh, leave sideways to really explore technology and uh, cryptocurrencies. So that's when we launched Kenya, which is a decentralized peer-to-peer service place uh, about a year, uh, year and a half ago. And then at the same time, this about a year, over a year ago, we noticed the uh, Ethereum had rolled out and the whole concepts of decentralized applications, smart contracts, run, uh, never stopping. Uh, really captivated our team. So we started to make the jump straight into a decentralized application over a year ago. Completed the ICO last year. And now here we are in 2018, rolling out uh, the decentralized service place. Um, and we're very excited about where we can take this. And why this idea? I mean, why come up with a decentralized peer-to-peer marketplace? Sure. So we, we looked at the incumbents, uh, such as Upwork, Freelancer.com, et cetera, et cetera, who... Uh, take very high commissions, uh, reviews can be manipulated, wealth and data is not self-sovereign, and the entire marketplace is centralized and hindered by uh, requiring internal operational support. And by that, I mean that you know, when you're launching a global marketplace, the technology can always scale. What stops a marketplace scaling is the operational side, the legal side, the accounting side, um, all the stuff that uh, slows down its growth. What we recognize is if you transition away from a centralized marketplace and make it a decentralized marketplace, you can scale a lot faster by returning that value back to its own users. 
platforms. So as a result, a decentralized service place compared to a traditional service place has really low fees. The value is recycled straight back into the economy. The operational and support can scale just as quickly as a user base grows by paying users to provide that support to the platform. There's very low legal over legal and accounting overhead as value doesn't is not transmitted through the platform. Value is transmitted around the platform using escrows in the blockchain. And uh, additionally, the payments can be made instantly, globally, borderless. So we're very, very excited about how disruptive it can be. Obviously, no one's done it before. Um, we're certainly thinking our own feet and learning from first principles. But um, and the kind of the takeaway line is it's the gig economy powered by the gig economy. Yep, I think that's a good way to sum it up. So if if I'm a stakeholder, so you know I could be a service provider or I could be someone who's looking to use a service. What does the journey look like today for me? Sure. Uh, so we are busy uh, finalizing the first um, version, the mainstream version of our platform. And we are definitely focusing on the user experience. What we've recognized with blockchain and cryptocurrencies is the user experience is actually quite bad so far. And the onboarding cost of, uh, in onboarding intellectual costs is very high. So it cuts that who has the time and motivation to join the platform. So what we're really trying to solve is user experience and the onboarding flow into cryptocurrency to almost make it like as though you don't even need to know about cryptocurrency blockchain. You just use it as a platform and you get to experience all the benefits. So uh, essentially for providers, they use a self-sovereign identity platform such as Uport. They very quickly log in. Um, they put up the skills and services, which is can be verified using crowdsource intelligence and then immutably verified on the blockchain and then ish list their skills and services. Users can come to the platform, also log in using a self-sovereign identity path, um, service and then they get to see all these providers. Um, and the skills and claims that the providers make about themselves are verifiably proven uh, through crowdsource intelligence. So the users are comfortable, comfortable dealing with these providers because they know there's no fake reviews and there's no fake profiles. And when they commit to a job, users are required to put up the value of the job in an escrow held on the blockchain. So for the provider, they know that the job is backed by real money and they're not going to get fleeced. Additionally, by holding the value in escrow, it gives the provider and user leverage against each other if something were to go wrong. So the user can use the leverage of an escrow to, to get the value that they need and the provider can use the leverage of the escrow, escrow uh, to essentially um, deliver that value and know that they can get paid. Yep. So it's, that's the experience. Yep. Uh, so you, you mentioned uh, this concept about escrow and I'm going to get into more detail as we, as we go on, but moving back to the application. So all the things that you mentioned in terms of being able to log in with a self-sovereign identity application, can one do all of those things today? Or is that still, still something that's under development? No, so we use Uport. So Uport's been around for over six months now. Yeah. Um, it's maturing. I think it's just off testnet as well. Uh, but yeah, you can log in with Uport easily. We want to take this further by building our own um, ERC seven two five based identity platform with our cooperation with Origin Protocol, um, who are the pioneers of this space, and that's ongoing research. Uh, but for now, we can use Uport. 
Okay. Uh, so before jumping into what we what you kind of brought up uh, the bit about the escrow transactions, I want to talk a little bit about your token can. So it has a few roles on the platform. Could you talk a little bit about it? Sure. So we want to pitch can as a medium of exchange with low velocity, as well as a store of value in our DAO. And let me explain that. So obviously money can possess several forms, medium of exchange. I, I can transfer you this value. Uh, it can be a unit of account as in if I, you ask for 10 units and I can give you 10 measurable and fungible units. Uh, and lastly, the most, the most desired property of money is that it's a good store of value as in it will retain its value today as it was yesterday. If tokens are just solely a medium exchange, then they can perform the job just as well as being a hundred dollar token as it was a one cent token. It just means I have to pay, you know, a thousand times more if it's one cent. Uh, but it can be a medium exchange and a unit account no matter the price. If you can solve for store of value, that's where the real utility of the token lies. So we do it by a couple of things. One is we incentivize our users to uh, essentially reduce circulating supply by staking their tokens in our DAO or in our HODL club. Once they stake tokens, they can earn from a range of micro tasks, uh, which also through self-interested activity, uh, further advances the benefit of the ecosystem. For example, I'm a staker of a token. I log into the DAO, I put a thousand can in it and I see all these micro tasks that I can then do and earn more can to complete, such as helping other users on board, resolving disputes, tagging categories, etc., etc. Uh, so that can help slow down the velocity of the token as well as presenting as a store of value. As in, I'm a DAO user, I know my thousand can is worth X today, it will be worth X tomorrow, the, the same amount. Uh, to reduce the velocity is another aspect we're trying to do. And that's fundamentally what revolves around our hedge escrow. Uh, reducing velocity is important in, uh, if, essentially with the money, monetary theory inflation, if you reduce velocity, then the price will naturally increase. If a token, if an economy has a, has a set monetary base and a set quantity. So we do this by incentivizing our users to put CAN into an escrow, which is held there for an hour, one day, a week, depending on how long the job needs to be performed before it gets finally released to the provider. The last aspect of what we're trying to do is essentially to increase buy-side pressure and reduce sell-side pressure. And in order to do this, we're building a modular service called CANPAY, which basically allow our users to convert any currency that they want, anywhere in the world, credit cards, Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, can, Ether, any other token, very quickly and easily into CAN. So essentially the way you view it is we're opening up the funnel to all currencies to get the quickly into CAN, allowing it to be escrowed and hedged in our escrow, and then finally release to the provider. And the last little bit is we incentivize our providers to keep their CAN by not charging any fees to hold their CAN or to be paid in CAN. If they then wanted to convert the can out into another currency, there's a small barrier, i.e. through a fee, um, to essentially slow down the exit side. So yeah, that's basically how what we're trying to do. And I see that prices are quoted in USD at the moment on your website. So is your token being used currently as a medium of exchange on the platform? We have had our platform out for a few months in private beta, and we have had a few jobs done. Uh, we were originally pitching the 
the jobs as a can per hour, uh, but we're gonna switch this to a dollar per hour because our users are more familiar with dollars per hour. And the value which is held in the escrow is actually hedged to USD, not CAN. Uh, and we, I can explain how it's hedged later. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but in the background, so, you know, on the, on the website in terms of a user interface, the prices are still coded in dollars because, you know, your users as well as your service providers are a little bit more comfortable with that. But in the background, is the transaction happening in CAN tokens or is that still happening in 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 dollars through a bank transfer? Correct. So, um, well, first, first bit was correct. So, the let's say I'm a provider and I'm charge $100 per hour. If yeah. CAN is, say, a dollar, then that will be... 100 can per hour got it so when i when i first agree to an hour long job at 100 dollars per hour then myself as a user needs to put in essentially 100 can because that will make up 100 dollars. at the same time our escrow records in its functionality that 100 dollars has been agreed to not not in terms of can but in terms of dollars yeah and then we have a a large hedge based on uh, stable coins, USC stable coins, as well as uh, the Digix stable coin. Yep. If uh, two weeks later when the job's done, the provider goes to withdraw, if the 100 can is now worth less than $100, we will autonomously buy into our own escrow and honor the $100 by paying out more can. So in case the price street decreased by 10%, the provider will end up with 111, 110 tokens, can tokens to, to make it $100. If, uh, so, and this act of doing an on-market buy through the Bancorp protocol, a continuous liquidity contract, to buy into the token to issue out more, it actually has a price correcting functionality. If, conversely, the 100 can is now worth $110, then we can siphon off that $10 to put back into the hedge to be used for a future payment. So it's kind of like an agreement, hey, you, you've agreed to pay your provider $100. The CAN hedged in contract will always honor $100. It will protect downside, and it'll also uh, siphon off the upside to be used to protect later downsides. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it works. Um, it's being built at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of things to get right, um, but we hope to provide that functionality so that people can use our platform and know that they will always be paid what they agree to be paid in USD. And the functionality of the hedge escrow has price corrective functions. Right. And are you still going to work with Digix? Is that still something that you're... Yeah, we're, we're very excited about Digix. Uh, essentially, it's a hedge not just against uh, crypto, but it's a hedge against the USD. Yeah. Um, it means that... And it generally outperforms the USD. So if we have a large amount hedge and gold represented by the token then we know our hedge will outperform the usd historically it does gold does so we know our hedge can essentially protect more downside uh, in the future but you're not looking to hedge over the long term right i mean you're looking to hedge over shorter periods of time a couple of weeks three weeks at most four weeks correct so we don't you're right, we don't hedge our market, we don't hedge the entire escrow. We simply hedge on a per transaction basis. And if you should know, each transaction 
has different maturity lengths. So providers and users enter in agreements with each other at any time of day for any length of time. So with a fluctuating market, overall, we can uh, balance out the market and honor all transactions by using one transaction's upside to cover another transaction's downside uh, so that everyone gets paid what they agreed, no more and no less. Yeah. No, I understand the concept. I'm just trying to figure out why Digix. Uh, so it's not all Digix. It's uh, we're using, we're going to use other stablecoins like DII, USD stablecoin. Um, Digix is just, will be just be one component of the escrow. Right. And, sorry. Right. And so while, while service providers are listing their jobs, um, do they have an option of choosing between USD and your token in terms of what they want to get paid in? Or do they have to go with the TAN token? Uh, so they choose to get paid a value, i.e. $100 per hour. Okay. But that value is transmitted via the CAN token, which can hold value. As you know, the CAN has market price. Yeah. So if we have an effective escrow, um, an effective marketplace, there should always be more people buying into CAN than selling out if it's all working well. So for the provider getting paid in CAN, they actually know that that CAN will hold its value but and with the correct growth characteristics of the platform, they know that CAN is not really going to see a downside. It should always see an upside. So that will incentivize them to hold CAN, which will further reduce velocity. Yeah. So, you know, I understand that you've put several mechanics, you've obviously thought things through in terms of your token economics and you've, you know, put kind of tried to put all of these through to your token. But I think the way the crypto ecosystem works today, I think it still takes a little bit of time for the token economics to play out. Right. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, I think, you know, some of the very good projects, um, great token economics based on the token economics, the token price should be appreciating mildly, but it doesn't, it just keeps going down because of market sentiment. So there's that speculative element as well, right? I mean, you can design a great token, but it's still subject to sort of not manipulation, but I would say speculation. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It's an emerging nascent industry. Uh, the technology is very immature. It needs to scale properly. There's a lot of problems around that. Uh, tokenized economies are very, very new. Um, you know, even, you know, Augur just launched a week ago um, and it's been in development for over, you know, 18 months. Yep. Uh, Digix is releasing their DAO, DAO, DAO soon. So we've never seen a fully fledged, mature tokenized economy. Uh, we're very, very familiar with traditional economies, uh, fiat-based economies, and we know the, the principles and theory around that, but we've never actually seen a mature token economy. So we definitely have to think on our feet and we definitely have to stay um, in dialogue with other projects in our, with our own community. Uh, but we're very excited to give it a good crack and we, the fundamentals are there for it to work. And, you know, we think that, yeah, we just want to give it a crack and our, our token holders and our community are very supportive of this. Just a quick question. So, I mean, I think I read somewhere that you're kind of, uh, you quoted um, some some individual who said that the first people who are going to get into cryptocurrency are not going to buy it. They're going to earn it. Yeah, that was Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase. That's, that's and right. yeah. 
Yeah, uh, he's, he's absolutely right. Uh, most of the world don't have disposable income. We're lucky that some of us might have disposable income the way we can invest it into cryptocurrency uh, or hold cryptocurrency. But the rest of the world aren't, uh, don't have that position. And we think that instead of get, but everyone gets paid, right? Everyone needs to put food on the table. Everyone has six jobs, six jobs and you know, wishes to get paid. So we think by targeting the payment economy and the gig economy and the work economy, we can in, uh, essentially approach a much larger cross-section of, the, of the, the world's communities. And so as a service provider, so when I, you know, so I, you know, I've put up my profile, I've put a price, I've listed my skills, I receive a job, I do the job. Do, do, do you guys, like, like, how would I set up a wallet? Like, where do the CAN tokens come? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out from a, from someone who's just coming into this world, you know, someone who's never bought cryptocurrency, they're going to receive their first cryptocurrency as payment. I mean, yeah, exactly. So it's not going to be that straightforward for me to like set up a wallet, receive these CAN tokens, convert them to ETH, sell it out in the market. I mean, it's, it's still a pretty cumbersome process, right? Correct. And uh, you're right. There is a learning curve associated with holding self-sovereign wealth. Um, there are kind of, intermediary platforms that bridge this by being custodial such as coinbase or um, crypto.com with the mco uh, wallet and the mco token yeah uh, we don't want to be custodial so we don't want to create a bank to hold people's crypto where you know we're, we're against that so instead we're going to tackle user experience and user education to allow them to be safe uh, but self-sovereign um, so we'll have to work with a whole bunch of other projects who are a little bit more specific in this regard, uh, such as, you know, Amise Go and um, Humanic, etc., etc., who are literally tackling um, getting crypto into the hands of people without bank accounts. Uh, yeah, so, but we're under no allusion to the difficulty of this. And our initial kind of uh, industry that we're targeting are digital freelancers who are comfortable with tech, comfortable with the internet, comfortable with cryptocurrency and blockchain concepts. So we think that, if we tell them, hey, you need to set up a wallet when you onboard this platform, they aren't going to freak out and they'll, they'll be able to step themselves through the process. That's why we have a close partnership and close relationship with Trust Wallet. Uh, Trust Wallet is hands, down, is hands down the best Ethereum and token wallet. And it's free, it's easy to use, it's safe, user experience is excellent. And we believe that just by directing our users to download the Trust Wallet, and setting up a trust wallet account for Kenya um, uh, integration, then a lot of that is taken care of. Yeah, I think that seems like a fair strategy. So high level speaking, it's clear that you kind of decided to be, to start off being relatively centralized and then over a period of time, move to greater decentralization. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So we, we are believers decentralization. We're believers of self-sovereign data, wealth and identity. And we don't want to take any shortcuts around being custodial or, yeah. um, you know, taking decent, uh, but, but is, we are, we're realist. But is yeah. there, is there a reason why you decided to take this approach, you know, kind of start being centralized and then move towards decentralization? Uh, the tech's not ready. Sorry to say, but yeah. you can't launch a DAP on Ethereum today, a fully decentralized DAP. And even, even DAPs are not fully decentralized. There's still a server, there's still DNS. Uh, there's still contracts that are written by people. Uh, so it's just not ready. In two years' time, when we have, say, more mature plasma 
affinity, which we had our host websites, such such of them maybe, and even decentralized databases to store backend code, serverless code. Maybe in future, you can push out a completely decentralized app where the database, the compute, the hosting, the DNS um, is all decentralized. Even the contract code is not updated by individuals. It's updated through DAOs where there is on-chain governance or contract-based governance. Then that's where it is. But as of today, no, it's not decentralized. Uh, can't launch a DAP. Um, and that's why we're working. So all of our DAPs we deploy across Firebase or Alibaba cloud services to access the Chinese market. But we are progressively bringing in elements of decentralization, like decentralized databases, decentralized file storage, like IPFS, um, and work our way there. Even the payment side, because our DAO has micropayments, we are working closely with state and payment channel providers, such as Seller Network, uh, to allow our providers and our DAO users to get paid uh, micropayments. We're talking like, you know, 0.001s of a can, you know, less than a cent. And these are done through payment channels, which are fast, instant, and extremely low fees. And that's based on partnerships with, say, Seller Network. And, you know, we're, we're monitoring what Loom's doing, Loom Network, as well as Plasma, yep. uh, definitely. Yep. Interesting, interesting. So you mentioned applications. I see you've developed a bunch of applications beyond the marketplace. Is that to support the ecosystem? Yeah, so we're not just the marketplace. We're not just the DAP. We are a decentralized service place uh, and an ecosystem. So instead of just rolling out like a Upwork or a Fiverr uh, clone, we're actually building not just the marketplaces, but the infrastructure around it and the ecosystem to support it. So we're talking uh, everything from modular, highly reusable code that open source code that anywhere in the world can download, clone, uh, fork, throw into a DAP, deploy very, very quickly, and plug it into our DAO to receive operational support. We're talking any marketplace uh, using all of our open source code. And like I said, our DAO can support not just our DAPs, but anyone else stops, even websites, uh, quite effectively. And that's our vision, is that we don't just create one marketplace, but we create thousands of marketplaces. And the code is highly modular, allowing thousands of developers to be working on it at the same time, or pay, pay for bounties from our DAO, which is self-serving and self-developing. So that's the vision. The vision is there is no team and there is no company. There's just simply a DAO, which is self sustaining, self-developing, self-maintaining, and it has the right token economics to be recycling value back into the ecosystem to achieve uh, essentially levels of growth we've probably never seen before. Sounds interesting and utopic, but let's see. I guess it'll play out. <laughs> um, yeah, so the core thing is on-chain governance. Uh, so there's three levels to our DAO. There's, uh, it's, our DAO is permissionless, so anyone can join. And... But there's, there's tiered levels. There's um, essentially member, admin, and core. For the next discernible future, um, our team will be core. Uh, so we will veto code. We will make um, exactly the decisions on where the code base is going, where the ecosystem is going. But in a year, two years' time, we intend to hand over core responsibilities to proven members of the community in such a way that that's, it's Byzantine resistance and you know requires super majority consensus all the time to move and it's effective so that no one can attack the ecosystem 
but everyone is ec economically aligned. And put in, no one's built this yet. No one's, this is still very much a concept of theory. Uh, no one's done it before. Yeah. Um, but we're definitely get willing to give it a crack and everything's there to do it. Yeah. So I think, I think Tezos is trying to solve the problem of on-chain governance as well. I think, I think that's the route that they're taking. Again, it remains to be seen how it plays out. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer of um, on-chain governance and, you know, validator signaling, uh, whereby it's not just a, hey, let's sit down and do a vote once a month. It's actually like, let's vote on proposals every single block, which could happen every twice a second. Yeah. So that the validators who secure the network or the collators or the miners or the block producers, they are voting on proposals every single second uh, so it can be rapidly integrated. But... The key thing, though, is preventing plutocracies and preventing um, out-of-band governance that we've seen with, say, EOS, uh, and making sure that minorities have have a voice and are able to swing votes and influence, um, you know, the the whales. And you can solve this using uh, mechanisms such as quadratic polling uh, and, uh, you know, enforced voting. Uh, to increase voting participation rights. So it's all about designing the core protocol in such a way that it solves these issues. And like, don't get me wrong, these issues are hard, but they can be solved. And I think um, we're very, I'm very excited and we'll definitely watch out to the space for sure. Yep. So you mentioned a couple of projects. You mentioned Definity, you mentioned Loom. Um, so beyond your own project are, is there any particular project that really excites you that you're really looking forward to in the next year or so casper v2 i i'm yeah. i'm a really a big supporter of vitalik and the ethereum's team of correct governance and correct decentralization i think other projects other protocols have taken some shortcuts here yeah um, but casper v2 when it rolls out will be uh, very decentralized it will be secure They'll have the correct economics to allow anyone to contribute and help secure the network without plutocracy taking, uh, I guess, hijacking the network. And it should be highly performant with uh, off-chain, side-chain scaling. Um, the key the key misunderstanding here is for people to think that you can push everything onto layer one. Um, if you look back how the internet was built back in the early 90s, we didn't build on layer one. And indeed, layer one is broadcast transactions across all ports. We instead built unicast transactions, you know, TCP IP, allowing one computer to talk directly to another computer without having to talk to all computers on the network. And then we built on top of that. We built APIs, we built, um, you know, bootstrap, et cetera, et cetera. Rolling out to, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010 era, when we were pushing out apps like WhatsApp, Uber, Airbnb that made use of this stack to really bring the internet and apps to mainstream. We're seeing that right now with blockchain. We've been used to layer one for so long, which is broadcast transactions. Now we're moving on to layer two. And then there's probably going to be a layer three and a layer four. And that's great. That's where we need to go. And in my mind, layer one defines the secures value. Layer two is the unicast transaction of that value. Layer three would be the, uh, the interface on layer two, allowing traditional web infrastructure uh, and user-facing apps to talk to layer two. And layer four would be like a user experience wrap up, wrap up of everything. So, and I think this is still five, five years away, but the vision is I'll be able to download an app on my phone and it's going to be trustless, decentralized and highly performant. 
and it's a multi-layer feature. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to mention that we may not have covered? Oh, well, uh, the thing about blockchain and cryptocurrencies is it's such a, it's a crazy world. I mean, literally every day something's changing. Um, the landscape's constantly changing. So just to all you, all your listeners right now in the, in the current kind of sideways bear market, uh, this is the future. Uh, and I really encourage everyone to take a deep dive into the, the knowledge, the fundamentals of blockchain and not get too worried about the speculative side of everything. That's secondary to actually delivering on technology. And, and this is what I tell my team, just focus on delivering, focus on knowledge. And then, uh, yeah, the next five, 10 years is going to be a, uh, a wild, but very enjoyable ride. Yep. It's been wild indeed, at least so far. <laughs> and I don't see that changing. Um, no. All right. On that note, uh, I think it's, that's a good note to end this interview. Thank you, JP, for taking the time out to come speak with us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram, and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.